2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate is a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. The Bayside Climate Crisis Action Group meets regularly and holds great forums and panels for their members. An amazing group of switched-on residents. Undeterred by lockdown, they've brought their events online. And we're so thrilled to be bringing you their latest. A presentation by Richie Merzian, Climate and Energy Director at the Australia Institute. In the interest of a quick turnaround, this episode mainly features Richie's presentation on the current and clear dangers of a gas-fired recovery. And I interspersed a little bit of the latest Q&A in there, with Professor Alan Finkel playing devil's advocate for gas. Why hear just the facts? Well, you can also hear the attempts at a counter-argument. All the better to prepare you for discussions in the world. Okay, let's get right to it. Has anybody here heard of Zali Stegel's bill? Put your hand up now. Put your hand down if you signed it. And keep your hand up if you have not. Well done, people. Thanks for coming. Good evening, all. Uh, lovely to see so many faces including a few that I haven't seen for a while. In fact, quite a few of you I haven't seen for a while, not in the flesh anyway. Well, welcome to tonight's uh, public forum, the Bayside Climate Change Action Group, uh, which we hold uh, on alternate months on a topic relevant to the climate emergency, the emergency we all face that is increasing in its visibility to more and more people. My name is David Rothfield, those who don't know me, uh, but before introducing tonight's topic, can I please ask Sarah to do some acknowledgements? On behalf of us all, I wish to acknowledge the Boongrong people on whose land we are meeting tonight at this particularly special and significant time of Reconciliation Week. They cared for this land in harmony with nature over eons of time. I recognise their sovereignty was never ceded and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge that we live in a time of climate emergency, which has already caused untold harm both at home, here in Australia and around the world, and threatens our very existence and that of all living things. I finally acknowledge the COVID-19 pandemic, which is causing much suffering in our world today. Thank you, David. Thank you, Sarah. So tonight's topic is uh, how to stimulate a renewables-led economic recovery post-COVID-19, and we've got two eminently suited speakers versed in this topic tonight. Uh, the first that I'd like to introduce you to is Richie Merzian, who's the Climate and Energy Director at the Australia Institute. Uh, Richie recently co-authored a paper about the government's underwriting new generation investments program, a very fancy name, often abbreviated to ANGI. Richie's uh, paper exposed UNGI as having no legislative basis, no guidelines or criteria, and following no clear process. And if I'm not mistaken, there is a legal challenge 
taking place about its legitimacy. Richie, you might want to just mention that in passing. So tonight, Richie will be discussing the policies and initiatives that we need government to take to kickstart us on the road to a renewables-led recovery. Richie's view on this has been on the telly recently. I've seen him at least twice in the last couple of weeks, and I don't know if the commercial channels gave you time as well. That would also be interesting to know. Richie, go ahead. Thank you, David. Uh, it was actually reminiscing that it was this time last week that I did an ABC 24 live feed from my garage, but rather than having the camera here, I turned it around to have the desk so it looked far more professional. But I'm giving everyone here the uh, the insights. And uh, on that note, I'm quite happy to be a lot franker as well. The Underwriting New Generation Investment Program, the Energy and Emissions Reductions Minister Angus Taylor has been pushing really on a crusade to maintain and if possible increase the share of fossil fuel electricity that Australians use. And the program was developed to back in and and ultimately underwrite new coal and gas-fired power stations. However, according to our research, there is no legal basis for it. There's no constitutional mandate. There was no clear process to develop it. No guidelines have been announced in a formal way. No procurement process has been followed. And now they seem to be progressing negotiations without any of these mandates. So we wrote up a paper on this. We've been doing a fair bit of work on this over the last two years. We also met with Zali Stegel, David mentioned earlier, uh, and with her, we wrote to the Auditor General, and he has since listed Angi for investigation uh, next financial year. So that's been a useful endeavor to at least bring one of these shady programs to light. Uh, on the subject of policies to stimulate a renewable-led economy, we often at the Australia Institute, based here in Canberra, work more on the defensive rather than offensive, just by virtue of the current government and its ideological position uh, to promote fossil fuels rather than to reduce them. Uh, and so I, I probably just, it's probably a bit more of a sobering uh, insight, but hopefully one that you might find useful. So currently we have no climate and energy policy at the federal level. And we haven't had one for the seven years that we've had a coalition government. Before that, we had a carbon price. The carbon price did reduce Australia's emissions by 2% over the two-year period it operated, and it also grew the economy by 5%. So it was a successful policy. It reduced our national emissions. Since then, our emissions have been rising. Only in the last few quarters has it started to dip, and that's not because of the government's efforts. It's really more a product of legacy policies that the federal government put in before the coalition, and also because of consumer choices. And you'll see a fair bit of news about this tomorrow because the next quarterly emissions data will be out tomorrow and that will be the news of the day. Policies that the government does have in the climate and energy space fall into three baskets. The first is a fund that has $2 billion. And the purpose of this fund is to purchase carbon credits from the market. So carbon credit originators will um, reforest or you know, change their agricultural practices according to standard methodologies. Or, or find a number of other ways that have been legitimated by the federal government to reduce their emissions and the government purchases those emission reductions through credits through this market. It's, but it's only $2 billion and it hasn't really been up to scratch. 
Uh, and it also there's been attempts to try and game it as well. So it hasn't really been a successful endeavor, nor is it an effective way to actually reduce our emissions. And it's called the Climate Solutions Fund, but it hasn't really solved much. The second policy is called the Safeguards Mechanism. Now, the purpose of this one was to cap emissions on the highest polluting facilities across the country. Those are, those are facilities that pump out more than 100,000 tons of CO2 pollution per annum. Unfortunately, again, this safeguards mechanism hasn't really safeguarded much. Uh, most, of the, most of the caps have been very generous, so it allows polluters a lot of headroom to continue polluting. And so it hasn't really reduced emissions or even kept them at, at the current levels from when it was originally put in place. The third basket of policies has been where most of the gains have been made. The legacy of the Labour Greens coalition under Gillard and that's the creation of the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the renewable energy target that we had up until 2020, as well as some other projects that, that have been announced but haven't really um, come to fruition yet, uh, like some of the pumped hydro projects. So because of these agencies and, and these renewable policies, we actually have had serious emissions reductions in the electricity sector. And the electricity sector is where one third of Australia's national emissions are based. So that, that's been the silver lining on what is an otherwise rather dark cloud. Unfortunately, the funding for ARENA, the Renewable Energy Agency, will run out in 2022. And the head of ARENA has said that they will have to stop funding projects by the end of this year if they don't get more funding. So that's, that's an issue. And we're pushing and many others are pushing for ARENA to be funded, especially since the government is fixated on technology as a solution, then really it should fund its technology agency being ARENA. The second issue is the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which operates kind of like a green bank. It's having its mandate reviewed at the next parliamentary sitting. And we fear that within that review, it will open up the Clean Energy Bank to funding basically dirty projects. Uh, so part of it will be funding some of these Angi projects, and it's being given a billion dollars to implement Angi. And Angi has 12 projects shortlisted, the Underwriting New Generation Investment Program. Six are hydro projects, but then six are fossil fuel projects, five gas, one coal. So it's a real worry if the Clean Energy Bank is, um, is ordered, is amended to fund this. And this is something we're keeping a close eye on as well. The other issue there is that it also might be funded to support carbon capture and storage, which is a favored marketing tool really because it hasn't really been a successful technology but a successful marketing tool to date otherwise you know dubbed clean coal in order to well theoretically to bury the emissions from uh, gas and coal exploration or consumption uh, to bury them uh, and to seal it up but unfortunately despite 1.3 billion dollars spent from the federal coffers there isn't a single fully operational carbon capture and storage facility in the country so it hasn't been a successful venture here in Australia, nor has it been that successful overseas either. Um, and so these are the things we're, we're keeping an eye out for. Really, if, if it comes down to what do we need to look out for right now, what is really getting in the way of, uh, of stimulating uh, our economy with the renewables future, it's gas. As a person from a farming background in Gippsland, I'm concerned that the gas-led recovery means that uh, vast areas of prime farming country will be impacted by gas extraction. This puts at risk our, the premium price we get paid for our produce because it will no longer be seen as clean and green. Why is the main thing suggested so far 
a gas-led recovery. And wasn't this a foregone conclusion given that the Prime Minister stacked his uh, COVID commission with gas and fossil fuel industry operatives? Gas is what we need to be keeping an eye out for. For the past decade or so, many people worried about climate change are focused on coal, and rightly so. Coal is the largest, you know, is, is responsible for the largest share of greenhouse gas emissions, and it was a worthy target. But all in the meantime, Australia tripled its gas supply, its gas exploration. Um, it became the largest gas exporter through LNG, and gas is now really becoming a major con- contribution from Australia of fossil fuel emissions. Ray Johnston. Good question, Daniel. That's my question as well. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I, I do have some concerns when it comes to you know, gas being touted as the way out of this, you know, for Australia's economic recovery. The solution does raise more questions than answers for me. Why have we chosen an industry that employs less than 0.2% of the workforce, you know, pre-COVID, rather than one of the industries that you know, employs lots of people. You know, why, why are we choosing to support an industry that raises questions in regards to its environmental impact? And there was some wording that came out of that recommendation that really concerned me, uh, which was uh, cutting the red and green tape. And I'd love some clarification as to what cutting the red and green tape actually means. Does that... You're talking about this report that was part of... Commission is part of the COVID commission process, which is not policy yet by any stretch. But it's advice, and you would assume that if people have been brought together for advice that they're going to be listened to, you'd you'd hope so Mm. at the least. But does cutting red and green tape mean no environmental impact statements? Does it mean that we're not looking at the impact on groundwater, which we still know so little about, which is so crucial to Australia? Water is such a precious resource. And does cutting that red and green tape extend to having conversations with traditional owners and and native title Mm. claims? This is... Questions that aren't really raised with other industries that we could be supporting. Now, it's worth flagging that you often hear Australia is responsible for only 1.3% of global emissions. That's true, but that only really has to deal with our domestic emissions. Australia's carbon footprint is much bigger than that. In fact, Australia exports more than twice as much as its domestic emissions in the form of liquid natural gas, LNG, and coal. So when we added it up, and we did this work last year, Australia is the third largest exporter of fossil fuels in the world after Russia and Saudi Arabia. So when you hear people say Australia is just 1.3%, it's not the full picture. The full picture is actually Australia's got a much bigger role to play, and that's because it exports its pollution as much as it uses it here, in fact, twice as much. And that's why gas is the real worry, because it has tripled its gas supply, It has become the largest gas exporter in the world. And the energy minister, who, you know, ironically is also responsible for emissions reductions, is keen on and has publicly stated he wants a gas-fired recovery. So that's why gas ultimately is the new battleground. And it's one that we should all be ready to to hit on the head. And the Australian Institute, like many others, BZE, many others are doing a fair bit of research around how you address this two things to kind of say on gas. The first is that gas is not cheap. Australia tripled its gas supply. And what what was the result uh, on the east coast of Australia is that actually gas prices went up. 
So despite having three times the supply, you know, um, gas prices went up because a lot of that was exported. So gas hasn't been a cheap source. And when you increase renewables on the electricity grid, the first thing it pushes out is gas because gas is often the most expensive. So gas hasn't been a cheap source of energy. It hasn't been good for jobs. There's only 0.2% of the workforce work in gas exploration. There are more people who install solar panels on roofs than work in all gas and coal-fired power stations around the country. Alan Finkel, have some you know, strong feelings, strong positive feelings about gas in regards to you know, bridging that gap between renewables and, and what Australia requires. But what is it about gas that we're getting you know, that outweighs all of these negatives that we couldn't potentially get you know, from battery storage, which can pay for itself within two years? So the answer to your question is that it's all about scale and speed. Uh, it's not about in my opinion, about building the gas industry for the sake of the gas industry. It's gas as an enabler. What I've been talking about consistently is moving towards a what I call an electric planet, a, a society where all of our energy needs come from clean electricity. The quicker we can get there, the better. I think that if we just try to bring on a lot of solar and a lot of wind electricity and hydroelectricity, but solar and wind in particular, and rely only on battery storage to give it its firming, to make sure that we can dispatch energy when we need it, there will be a limited rate, given the availability and cost of batteries, there will be a limited rate at how fast we can develop solar and wind. But gas has much, much more scale than batteries. And gas is effectively the perfect complement to solar and wind. We can build a lot of solar and a lot of wind and use gas for the times when we don't have the sunshine and the wind blowing. Alan Finkel, you chair the Technology Investment Roadmap Ministerial Reference Group. That's working with Angus Taylor, the Energy Minister. But it seems you and many members of the government are already convinced that gas is the way forward. Have you already reached a conclusion on this? No, the answer is no. Um, I was giving you my my personal opinion based on a few years of looking at this. But what we're doing in the, the Low Emissions Technology Roadmap is a consultation process. We've started off with a large suite of possible technologies. We're looking at them through consultation with the broader community to choose those or to identify those that have the largest scale potential for abatement to reduce emissions, the largest economic opportunity, and also those that will build on Australia's comparative advantages. So there are hardly any jobs in gas. Worst, it is actually the worst sector you can invest in when it comes to job creation. In fact, you can invest in any other sector of the economy and make more jobs. So we have some research coming out on this soon that lays it all out, but it's, it's a bad one in terms of job employment. Hardly any money flows to Australia from the big gas companies, the multinationals that have actually been championing this. So it hasn't been a major money spinner for Australia. And there's multiple examples of these corporations, these biggest companies in the world, profit shifting off Australia. And you add up all their tax receipts and, and it's minuscule. In fact, Chevron, one of the largest, successfully prosecuted by the ATO for profit shifting to its headquarters in the U.S., we only had to pay 300 million back, which is which is pittance compared to the money it's making, but it hasn't been a major money source for Australia either. Chevron is one of the world's largest multinational companies, and it stands to make billions of dollars mining Australian natural gas. But this corporate titan has a bad reputation of paying very little in Australian tax. 
Today, the company's bosses were called to account by a Senate inquiry. They claim to follow the letter, the spirit and the intent of the law, but their critics remain unconvinced. And finally, there's a real issue around our democracy and gas. There's an integrity issue. And the best example of that is right now, the Prime Minister personally handpicked a gas executive, Neville Power, to head up a commission that is in charge of Australia's economic recovery. And to help him on this task, he also provided him with some other fossil fuel executives to help with this task, including the head of Energy Australia, including uh, the head of uh, one of our major um, infrastructure pipeline companies for gas, including a former climate minister who also does consultancy for the gas industry. And then in addition to that, they also appointed a special advisor who sits on the board of Saudi Aramco, the largest oil and gas company, as well as on the board of the largest engineering company for oil and gas. So if you look at this commission, it's clear what they're supposed to do, which is to push gas. And they've already said as much. And the bigger issue is that they're not accountable. There's no transparency. We're not sure what their, their mandate is, how, they, how they're reporting back. Um, and so part of the issue around gas is the integrity and the influence it has in our politics, which is why it's so important we start waking up to its influence and, and to what it could potentially do to, to not just climate, but to our, uh, our country more broadly and our democracy more broadly. Now, one thing specifically for Victoria to leave you on, uh, on, a, on a more constructive note, I guess. We have research coming out. Every month, Australia audits the electricity sector to see what the emissions makeup look like, as well as looking at the transport sector too. One thing that, that we've noticed is that gas use in Victoria is at an all-time high. For the month of April, uh, I think it, it's higher than any, than any April in the last 10 years. In part, we think it's because Victoria, more than any other state in the country, is connected to gas as a heating source. 80% of households use gas for heating. This is compared to, say, just under 50% for New South Wales. And obviously, Victoria, much like Canberra, uh, is colder in the winter. So in wintertime, Victoria is responsible for about half of residential gas use. Why I raise this is because there's a current battle going on at the state level around gas. Next week, the Victorian parliament is likely to consider lifting a moratorium on exploring gas onshore. Now, this is something that the premier put out as an announcement that his government supports lifting this moratorium quietly during the pandemic. So despite not being able to revise the emission targets, which the government promised it would do by this time, it was actually able to lift the moratorium on gas exploration. But the parliament has to consider that next week. So there's an immediate opportunity for you guys, if you want to, to actually make you know as much noise as you can around the role that Victoria will play in gas and the role that gas will play in our future. So there's a lot of work to do. It's the best time to do it really, because there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of opportunity and, and, and examples overseas of how you can stimulate the economy, combining policies that stimulate along with policies that align with climate action. In Australia, we don't have a federal government that is interested in doing that, but we can push them. And there's state governments that might be more flexible than at the federal level. So we have our work cut out for us, but at least we know what the challenges ahead. Oh, and on a final note as well, last week I hosted a conversation with Zali Stegel. A good part of that was to focus on gas. Um, and as part of that, we, we started a petition, which we're directing 
to the Energy and Emissions Reduction Minister to tell him not to adopt the gas-fired recovery, but instead to combine an economic stimulus package that also aligns with our climate ambitions. So I'm happy to post a link to that petition if it's something of interest, and uh, I'll leave it there. There were some great questions asked by the attendees, and a whole other presentation in this webinar, but I'll be honest, I ran out of time. And in the interest of a quick turnaround and a punchy episode, I omitted all but Richie's final answers. Here they are, summing it all up nicely. Our fuel efficiency standards in Australia are some of the worst in the OECD. There's been a ministerial council to try and correct this for five years. It's been led by the Deputy Prime Minister, Michael McCormack, and that's probably all you need to know about why it hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, The second is there's a liquid fuel security review around why Australia is so insecure when it comes to our liquid fuels, petroleum and diesel and and aviation fuels. 90% is imported. Australia only has four refineries left. The government had a draft report of this that was released before the election that found that at any one time, Australia only has three weeks worth of fuel. And if an emergency required rationing, it would take three weeks to implement it. So uh, it's a dire situation. Uh, The prime minister's response is, is to send a warship to the Straits of Hormuz to protect our oil shipping lines. Uh, but a much better response would be to electrify our transport sector. On that, the government has an electric vehicle strategy that has been promising, a federal one, uh, since the election. It's supposed to come mid-year. They have been working on it. The first sign of life has come through in the technology investment roadmap that Minister Taylor put out last week, where it's starting to talk about electric vehicles. However, the federal government so badly rubbished electric vehicles during the federal election where it claimed that it would kill the weekend and demolish the ute market and all this kind of rubbish that it actually sent EV sales backwards. Um, The only reason why we have an increasing amount of electric vehicles right now is because of state government initiatives to put in the infrastructure, to purchase through their own fleets, Um, To look at incentives, like in the ACT government, you can waive stamp duty if you buy an electric vehicle. Only because of state and territory governments are we seeing an EV uptake. That will eventually change. It has to change because Australia imports most of its cars and most major car manufacturers will eventually move to electric vehicles. So it will happen. It's just the question is whether Australia is dragged kicking or screaming or whether we actually make, uh, you know, some initiative to actually take advantage of the change. And that would lead in beautifully to a look at a plan for a brighter future, a smarter rebuild, like the One Million Jobs Plan from Beyond Zero Emissions. In the interests of turning this around quickly, the invitation is warmly extended to BZD to collaborate with us on a great audio adaptation of a briefing for that plan, and we think there's fertile ground for a whole bunch of audio storytelling around their work. We hope to be able to bring that to you in the future along with the other great shows already released and in production on the Climactic Collective, the podcast network for the climate community. Thanks so much to BCAG for recording this, and for using Zoom's Record Guests as Separate Tracks function to let us get such good audio. 
If you'd like to help us produce more events with the audio skills you've got, or would like to learn, please get in touch. And if you're a group putting on great events, and would like us to adapt them to podcast episodes with you, please do the same. Thanks to Richie Merzian, Heidi Edmonds, and the BCAG team. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.